Parsha Shoftim deals largely with authority in the Jewish community, both religious and political. Towards the outset of the Parsha, we have a well-known section that deals with specifically the rabbinic authority and the religious authority of the Sanhedrin specifically. And the Torah tells us in a very famous pasuk in Perak Yudzayin, Pasuk Yudalef, Whatever teaching they teach you, whatever ruling or judgment they issue, you must do, you must follow. Do not deviate from any word that they tell you, right or left. And this is clearly investing the rabbinic authority with tremendous amount of authority. What is interesting and noticed by the various Mepharshim is the fact that the last two words of the Pasuk seem to be extra. What is added by those words, yamin usmol, right or left? Clearly the authority and the need to listen to them would have been just as accurately and fully conveyed if the Torah just said, So why does the Torah add on, why does the verse add on those extra words, right or left? So Rashi, basing himself on a comment of the Medrash in the Sifrei, explains very famously, even if they get something wrong, they say about the right that it's left or about the left that it's right, even then you must listen to them in absolute authority. This is, as I say, the simple understanding of Rashi based on his citation of the Sifrei. However, various Mepharshim over the millennium have asked any one of one, two, or perhaps three different questions against Rashi. Number one is just logically, how is it possible? Why would it be? Why would the Torah want us to listen to the Chachamim if we knew they were wrong? Number two is if you look in the actual Sifrei, as I mentioned, the source and the origin of Rashi's comment is a Medrash, but if you look in the Medrash itself, there's a slight different formulation. Rashi seems to have just paraphrased, but the actual uh, Sifrei seems to have a critical difference. There, the actual Sifrei is, Afilu ma'arin bi'einehem, if it appears in your eyes that they made a mistake. But the clear implication is not that they actually made a mistake, but you think differently than they do. You think that they're making a mistake, but not that you know for sure. And therefore the implication is that if, if in fact, you knew for sure they were making a mistake, maybe you wouldn't have to listen. And in fact, number three, that is the conclusion of the Yerushalmi, a different rabbinic source, the Talmud Yerushalmi in Masech Harios, in which according to them, the Yerushalmi, the addition of the words Yaminu Smol is specifically Dafka coming to teach us that you only have to listen to them when they get it right, when they say that the right is right and the left is left. So according to that source, it's clear that you don't have to listen to them if they're making a mistake. So why logically and based on these other sources does it seem like Rashi is saying you have to listen to them even if you know they made a mistake? So the truth is that there are various mafarshim of Rashi um, who suggest, based on these questions, that you have to reinterpret Rashi in one way or another. And that's uh, worth keeping in mind. What is interesting is the presentation of Ramban. Ramban, in a very characteristically brilliant and insightful piece, even though it's not that long, but there's a lot going on, the Ramban addresses, I think, these issues. But as I say, it's somewhat complicated and very, very com- you know, sophisticated, because even though it's not a long piece, I would break the Ramban down into three different sections. And in the beginning... And the end of the piece, both in the beginning and the end, Ramban seems to make clear that he thinks the Pasuk is talking about a situation in which you think that the Chachamim made a mistake, that it appears that they made a mistake, but not that they actually did. Towards the beginning, uh, the Ramban says, You think that they made a mistake. 
or towards the end of the piece, the Ramban quotes the Sifrei, which we mentioned before. The Sifrei itself says, Ma'arin Beinehem. It appears that they made a mistake, but not that they made a mistake. Moreover, the Ramban is explicit that the Chachamim are the beneficiaries of a special Hashkacha, a special divine providence, a divine spirit that helps guarantee that they won't make a mistake. Ruach Hashem Yisbarach al-Masharsei Mekadsho lo yazav eschasidav li'olam nishmeru menatos menemichshol. They are protected with hashkacha and divine presence and divine spirit not to, to allow them not to make a mistake. So in that case, the Pasuk is again understood that even if you think they're making a mistake, trust them that in fact they're not making a mistake. Uh, they have hashkacha, they're learned, they're brilliant, etc. But the main thing is that they have hashkacha from Hashem who's helping them and therefore trust them that it's probably you made the mistake, not them. However, in the middle of those two things, the Ramban actually seems to go with Rashi's approach, and in fact seems to say that you have to listen to the Chachamim, afilu yitu, even if they make a mistake. Now, while it's not 100% clear if the Ramban is just quoting Rashi here, uh, or if he is on some level adopting the position of Rashi, but either way, it begs the question, why would it be? Why would we have to listen to the rabbis afilu yitu, even if you know they made a mistake? And the Ramban addresses this question explicitly. And the Ramban actually gives a very profound and important answer. Says the Ramban, it's the nature of Torah, certainly Torah Shebechtav, the way it was given over, it's finite, it can be in places terse and ambiguous. And the nature of Torah is that there are going to be different people who over the centuries will interpret and reinterpret and disagree with each other on how to exactly understand the psukim and what the Torah and therefore halacha wants from us. Lo yishtavu hadeos, hanoladim, says the Ramban. There's no way everyone, all the Chachamim are going to agree. And therefore, if we didn't have a central address, if we didn't have a single address, a single authority to the end to decide what is the right and wrong interpretation? We'd have complete disunity. We even have chaos. We wouldn't know what the Torah is, what the Judaism is, what halacha is. We'd have no way of moving forward. It'd be uh, you know, paralysis by analysis. There'd be too many different interpretations. We wouldn't know how to move forward. And therefore, the Torah tells us, in fact, lo tasur. Even if it turns out, it's unlikely. But if it turns out they made a mistake... It's still in the big, in the scheme, greater scheme of things, in the big picture. It's more important to vest central authority in this rabbinic body and listen to them, even in the likely case they made a mistake, because the alternative would be to be have complete chaos and a total lack of unity. And therefore, it's something very, very fascinating that emerges from the Ramban. We have on the one hand what seems to be his view that they won't make a mistake, and therefore it's just about the appearances. But we also have an interpretation that even if they did make a mistake, it's still better to listen to them in order to preserve Jewish unity. Parsha Shoftim introduces us not only to the religious leadership of the Jewish people, but also to the political leadership structure envisioned by the Torah as well. And therefore, we read in the beginning of the Sheni Aliyah and Parak Yedzayin, Pasuk Tezvav, after the Jewish people have entered and settled the land of Israel, Som Tasim Melech Asher Yivcha Hashem Lokecha Bo. You shall sorely appoint for yourself a king who Hashem will choose from amongst you. And this Pasuk serves as the basis of the mitzvah of appointing a king, as the Gemara in Masechta Sanhedrin, Davchaf, and the Rambam at the beginning of Hilchus Malachim codifies, when the Jewish people enter, conquer, and settle the land of Israel, they are then obligated as a nation, as a whole, to fulfill three mitzvot, appointing a king, as we just read, eradicating a Amalek, and eventually building the base of Migdash. So the first half of the Pasuk 
Som Tasim Alach Melech is the source of that very important mitzvah. However, in a fascinating passage, the Oznaim Torah, by Rav Zalman Saratskin, he explains the second half of the Pasuk, the continuation of the Pasuk, as, in his opinion, a subtle a description and allusion to what qualifications, what characteristics we should be looking for when we have to choose a king. What is important? What should we think about when we choose a king? So the continuation of the Pasuk reads as follows. Bekerav achecha tasim this person, this king, should be somebody who comes from amidst your brothers. That's who you should have as a king. It cannot be a person who is a nachri, who is not your brother, who is not achicha. And in this brief passage, the Oznayim Torah makes three points on those words, on that second half of the Pasuk. The first point he makes is, he just assumes that this second half of the Pasuk is describing a situation when there are no longer any Nevi'im. Prophecy has ceased to exist. Now, I'm not aware of any earlier authority who makes this point. It could be that it, there are other Mepharshim who say that. I just didn't see it. But I think even without a source, and he does not cite a source for his assumption, but I think it seems, to, in his opinion, obvious, because if the second half of the Pasuk is telling us what to look for in a king, well, that only is relevant if we don't have a Navi, because if there's a Navi, then we don't need to know what to look for. The Navi will tell us who the right person is to be the king. In fact, that's clearly what the first part of the Pasuk is referring to when it says, Asher yifchar Hashem Hashem will choose who the king is. And how will we know who Hashem has chosen? Through the Navi. So if the second half of the Pasuk is talking about what we should be looking for, obviously, says Rav Zaman Saratskin, is talking about when there is no longer Nevuah. That's point number one. And then he says, okay, well, what do we need to know? What do we look for? So he says, well, the continuation of the Pasuk, so the first thing we read is that this king, this person should be, Mikara from amidst your brothers. What does that mean exactly? So he quotes the short observation of the Medrash in the Sifrei, who says that Mikar Vachacha means Hagar Be'eret Yisrael, someone who lives in Eretz Yisrael. In other words, Mikar Vachacha doesn't just mean someone who is coming from a large group of Jews, which hypothetically could be anywhere in Chutzlaretz, but rather Mikar Vachacha in the most Achacha, in the most formal and intense sense in Israel, which is Kolkulo, where Achacha are, where the Jewish people are, so someone who's coming from there, the midst of that, Mikar Vachacha, that is who the king will be. Now, why is that important? Why is that necessary? So Rav Sarutskin assumes that even though we're talking about a political leader, the king, but this is describing not the political benefits of having a king coming from Eretz Yisrael, but rather the religious virtues. After all, we know that Chazal is replete with many, many different statements, not only extolling the religious virtues of Eretz Yisrael, but in some cases even harshly uh, criticizing the situation outside of Eretz Yisrael. And in fact, he quotes one of the more famous ones, which describes someone who lives outside of Israel as as if he or she doesn't have a God. And even if we assume that that is a hyperbolic statement on the part of Chazal, its intent is still clearly conveyed. And that is that the place for maximal religious growth and a relationship with Hashem is only in Eretz Yisrael. And whatever one could accomplish in Chutzlaretz, there's a certain limit that does not allow you to truly have a relationship with Hashem the way one could have, potentially, if you live in Eretz Yisrael. And Rav Sarutskin assumes that that's also why it's important to have a king coming from Eretz Yisrael. Because even though he's going to be the political leader, but the political leader of the Jewish people should be a religious role model as well. After all, he says, 
Eich yimloch al Yisrael kadoshim. How could anyone think that someone who didn't live in Eretz Yisrael, who has that ability to maximally benefit from the spiritual properties of the land of Israel, how could someone who didn't have that possibly be, possibly be the leader of the holy Jewish people? Now that fascinating insight that the political leader needs to be someone who has access to and is tapped into the spiritual nourishment of Eretz Yisrael is confirmed and only strengthened by Srotskin's explanation of the continuation and the conclusion of the Pasuk, which we read that the person who you choose cannot be Ish Nachriya Sherlo Achichahu. And we would have simply understood that that is coming to preclude the possibility of a non-Jew, a Nachri, a Goy, being the king. However, Srotskin says that cannot be what the Torah means because it's obvious who would have thought? What kind of havamin would anyone have that you could appoint a non-Jew to be the king of the Jewish people? That a mitzvah of the Torah could be fulfilled by appointing a non-Jew to be our king? Rather, he says, that can't be what it means. The Torah, in fact, assumes obviously the king is going to be Jewish. And here the Apostle is telling us that you can't appoint someone who is a, he explains poetically, a nachri l'ruach Yisrael v'toraso. Nachri literally means a stranger. And here, says Rav Srotskin, it means a stranger, someone who is estranged from the spirit, the values of the Torah and the Jewish people. Someone who is unfortunately not particularly religious and observant. That person who may have plenty of other skills, maybe a great leader, and a political visionary, and a great organizer or speaker, really, sincerely, nevertheless is ineligible to be the king. Someone who is a nachri l'ruach Yisrael v'taraso, that person simply is not the right role model, cannot be the leader of the Jewish people. In fact, he points out that the Targum, Yonas and Ben Uziel, actually in his Aramaic Targum, his translation of this Pasuk, says on the word Nachri, he explains that to be Gever Chiloni, using that similar term we're familiar with in the modern context of a non-religious or secular Jew. And therefore he says, anyone who is Mitnaheig, not al Torah, that person could not possibly be the king. In other words, you have a fascinating interpretation that the king, who's the political leader, must be a religious role model who lives in Eretz Yisrael and who lives al Ruach HaTorah. There's something truly fascinating and really quite perplexing about the clear contrast between the Torah's initial, theoretical, you could say, presentation in our parsha of the mitzvah of Minoy Melech, of appointing a king, and the actualization of that mitzvah in the time of Shmuel, as is recorded in Shmuel Aleph. Because even though our parsha tells us, Som Tasimalech HaMelech, there's a mitzvah to appoint a king, the Gemara and Sanhedrin, the Rambam codify this mitzvah. Nevertheless, when time comes to actualize that mitzvah, and to in fact perform it, and the people approach Shmuel, this is recorded in Shmuel Aleph in Perches, they are strongly criticized and condemned by the Nabi. By By asking for a king, they very much upset the Nabi and he condemns them. So it's really, really, you know, the contrast is glaring, but it's more than just glaring, it's, per, it's perplexing because it doesn't make any sense. If in fact there's really a mitzvah to appoint a king, why would Shmuel be so upset at them? What did they do wrong? They're just doing what the Torah said. And as the Gemara explained, once you come into the land of Israel, once you settle the land of Israel, then there's a mitzvah to appoint a king. And that's all they were doing. So why would the Navi be so critical of them? This is really a powerful question and a perplexing issue. And in fact, the Rabbanim from the time of the Mishnah, the Tanoim, as recorded not in the Mishnah, but in the Tosefta, which is a similar 
time frame as the Mishnah. The Tosefta, Masechta Sanhedrin, and Parakdalid quotes three different answers, a three-way machloket to understand this problem, to resolve this question. And in fact, as the Tosefta lays out the question, given that there's a mitzvah, Imkain, Lama Nen what did they do wrong? Why were they so roundly condemned and punished in the time of Shmuel for just asking to do what was really a mitzvah? The first answer, the first opinion that suggested in the Tosefta, recorded anonymously, is Lefisha Higdimu Alehen. They asked for the king too early. It was premature. The time for the king was not yet. Now it's not clear, the Tosefta does not elaborate what was wrong about the timing, why was it too early, what would have been a better time. That's not elaborated on. And honestly, at least in my opinion, it's very hard to really substantiate this opinion given that Shmuel's criticism does not mention anything about timing. It just seems to criticize their request for a king on the merits. But nevertheless, that is the first opinion anonymously cited in the Tosefta, that it was the timing that was the problem. As we know in life, timing is everything. And in this case, according to that first opinion, the timing was off. Second opinion cited in the name of Nehorai is, that in fact, already in the time of the Torah, in our Parsha, there was not a positive attitude towards having a king. However, the Torah knew, HaKadosh Baruch knew obviously, in advance, we know prophetically that there will come a time when the people enter the land of Israel and they will want to have a king and they'll be so desperate to have a king that they'll come to the Navi, they'll ask for it. And evidently, the Torah decided in its infinite wisdom, rather than telling the people that their desire was wrong, the Torah decides that we will acquiesce to the, Torah, the people's desire, even though we're not a fan of it per se, but given that they're really going to want it, we're going to in fact compromise and allow what they want but will provide the proper structure for what is the appropriate way to have a king. So in anticipation for the fact that they'll want a king, because they'll be so desperate to want to be like everybody else, the nations around them, says Rav Nohorai, the Torah, years in advance, in our parsha already, anticipating that desire, compromises with reality and allows it. And in fact, we could bring support for Rav Nohorai from the fact that in the immediately preceding Pasuk in our parsha, Perak Yedzayin Pasuk, Yadalid, the opening of the Sheni Aliyah, the Torah predicts that it'll come a time when you'll come into the land of Israel, and you'll settle the land, and you will say, Asim alai melech, I want a king, because we want to be like the nations around us. And in fact, that's exactly what happens in the time of Shmuel. And evidently, according to Narai, the Torah understood human nature well enough, and therefore it, could under, it anticipated it would happen. And rather than fighting it, for whatever reason, we decided in this case to compromise with reality and to allow the people what they wanted, but just to provide a halachic framework for that. The third opinion is Rabbi Lazar Rabbi Yossi, who says if you read the Psukim in Shmuel carefully, in fact, there are two separate requests. The first request, which he attributes to the Zikanim, the elders of the nation, Shaluk Halacha, he says, they asked completely appropriately. Nothing wrong with that when they came to Shmuel and they said, Tanalanu Melech that was great. However, he said, if you read the whole story to the end, and you read it carefully, you see that another group of people, the masses, what the Tosefta refers to as the Ameha Aretz, they jumped on the bandwagon, and they ruined it. Ameha Aretz chizru v'kilkalu. They ruined it because they explicitly said, we want to be like the non-Jews. Hayinu gamanachnu goyim. They want a king, not because it's a mitzvah, they want a king because they want to be like the goyim that surround them, like their new neighbors. And it's only that, says Rabbi Lazar Rabbi Yossi, that Shmuel was condemning. Not the initial request for a king per se, 
that the Zakenim asked for, but the additional request and transparent motivation of the Am Ha'aretz. What emerges is something fascinating. We have this blatant contradiction, this unbelievable conflict between our Parsha and the Navi, and three opinions. But the three opinions really are two fundamental approaches. The first opinion and the third opinion really see there nothing wrong per se with having a king. In fact, it's a mitzvah. The only thing that was problematic in the time of the Navi, in the time of Shmuel, was either that the people asked too early, their timing was off, or their motivation was off. But the basic idea of having a king, according to the first and the third opinion in the Tosefta, is absolutely appropriate, hence it's a mitzvah. On the other hand, the middle view, that of Rav Nahorai, suggests that in fact, there was a negative view already in the time of the Torah. The Torah itself had a negative view towards the monarch. That, that's where Shmuel was coming from. Shmuel is actually channeling and expressing the true view of the Torah and of Yiddishkeit, to be against the king. And it was just a concession, a compromise, and a concession to the weakness of the Jewish people that the Torah was willing to allow. Very fascinating, and now time does not permit to elaborate, but at least according to this middle view, the king is part of a larger category, not such a large category, but a broader category, where you have other mitzvos, perhaps like Eshet Yifat Toar and others, where even though the Torah is against something, but in a few limited circumstances, the Torah makes a concession to human weakness. In assembling the Jewish army for battle, the Torah tells us that there are a number of deferments, a number of categories of individuals, that if they meet certain criteria, they are exempt from going to war. And in Perak Chaf, Pasuk Chet, one of the people, one of the categories of people that we are told who gets such a deferment is someone who is Hayarei Varach HaLevav, someone who is scared and faint-hearted. Fascinatingly, the Mishnah in Masechah Sota describes a machlokes between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yossi what exactly we are describing, what type of fear is exempt from battle. Rabbi Kiva says, Kimashma'o. The Torah is being very realistic. A soldier who has even more than the natural and normal level of fear, a soldier who himself is so scared and faint-hearted that he won't be able to fight properly, not only is he unhelpful to the battle cause, but in fact he's a negative influence because fear is contagious. And therefore, someone who really is too scared to fight Better to give that person a deferment and exempt them from battle. However, more relevant, I think, to a message for us is the opinion of Rav Yossi who explains that we're not describing someone who's fearful of the actual battle per se, but rather, scared because of his sins. And it's clear that the intent of Rav Yossi is to describe a person who has sinned, apparently, seriously or continuously, and that person is scared, but not just scared because of battle in the way we typically imagine, or the way Rabbi Kiva described it, but he's specifically scared because he understands that although Hashem could punish him at any point, Hashem could strike him down at a moment's notice, even when he least expects it because of his past sins, but nevertheless, it's more plausible and perhaps in his mind more likely then if Hashem really is upset at him, and again, this is a person who understands about himself that Hashem has reason to be upset at him, then it's more plausible that if he goes out to battle and he's in a naturally and objectively dangerous situation, that would be a very easy and opportune time for Hashem to punish him for his sins. And therefore, even if it's not the most sound thing theologically, 
But psychologically, such a person might be too scared to go to battle and might feel safer if they stay home. Now again, it's not the most coherent theological uh, assumption because obviously God could strike the person down and punish the person even if he's at home and in the safety of his own bed, in the comfort of his own bed. But nevertheless, psychologically, I think we could all understand that a person who really is worried about being punished by Hashem might feel like going out to battle is the last place he wants to be. And says Rabbi Yaglili, that is the person who the Torah is exempting. Now what's fascinating is that the Gemara, in commenting on this opinion of Rabbi Yaglili, wants to know what type of sins did this soldier violate such that he is so scared that Hashem will punish him, and that he gets a deferment and an exemption from battle. And the Gemara, in fact, gives examples of Averos Durabonon. For example, Hasach Bein Tefillah a man has already put on his tefillin shalyad, has already made the bracha, and now he's in the process of putting on his tefillin shalrosh, he's not allowed to talk in between and in the middle of that process. If he talks, that's wrong, that's a hefsake. But to be blunt, we're talking at worst about an iser derabanan, a rabbinic transgression. And yet, according to the Gemara, it is this or a similar type of era which would already be sufficient for a person to pull out the deferment card, I'm exempt card, because he's scared that Hashem might punish him. This amazing Gemara yields a very powerful question, and I believe an even more powerful answer, from the famed Kutzker Rebbe. In the collection of the Kutzker's ideas on the Torah, the Sefer called Ohel Torah, on our Parsha, the Kutzker asks a very basic and fundamental and really obvious question, at least obvious once he asks it, on our Gemara, on our Yaglili, on this din. If even violating a single Isser de Rabbanon is enough to exempt a person from battle because of his high sin quotient, so to speak, exactly how big was the Jewish army? Who could possibly go to war if the bar is so high? Or between or some kind of a half-sake. How many people could honestly look in the mirror and say, I don't even have that in my closet. I don't even have that skeleton in the closet. The only soldiers who go to battle are people who don't even violate Isiuri Durabanan. The only people who can go to war are people who are so holy and so pure, they don't even have a hefseik in Isiuri Durabanan in their ledger. Umi yomar zachiti libi, says the Kutzker. Who could possibly think that they're that holy and pure? In other words, how big is the Jewish army, according to Yaglili? If everyone who even did Isiuri Durabanan is exempt, how is it possible we'd have a battle? What's going on? How is it possible to understand this at face value? And because of this question, that yields to an unbelievable, I think, and penetrating and original insight of the Kotzker. He says, who are we talking about? We're talking about someone, he says, who of course did a sin, yes, but we're talking about a person who's now a Yare Hashem, who now is Eino Over Chas V'Shalom, Shema he's not sinning anymore. He already did Tshuva. And yet, despite the fact that he already did Tshuva, he's haunted by the guilt of his previous activities. As the Lashon of the Mishnah was, as Rav Yosef Yaglili said, he's misyari min ha'averos shebiado. Literally, the sins that are still in his hand, explains the Kutzker, because he can't let go. He's stuck. These averos are stuck in his hands, even though he did tshuva, even though he's not transgressing anymore, even though he really did rehabilitate himself. He's haunted by his past. He can't let go of the feelings of guilt that are accompanying him night and day, because of his past indiscretions. This, says the Kutzker, leads to a person becoming depressed and so spiritually imbalanced and insecure 
He's Eino Osetov Lahaba. If you can't let go of the past, you can't produce a better future. And somebody like that says the Kotzker, Eino Rashai Lechem He doesn't have the right chizlak, he doesn't have the proper perspective. We don't want him on the battlefield. And this is obviously a very powerful idea which we should all think about on the eve of Rosh Chodesh Elul. And that is, of course, Chuva requires us to confront our past. But we can't become paralyzed by our past. A healthy Avodah Hashem is based on a balance between past and future. And this soldier failed that test. That the Chachamim are imbued with tremendous authority is clear from the Pasuk in our Parsha, Paragizayin, Pasuk Yudalef, Lo Sasur, Min Hadavar, or Small. You cannot deviate from what the rabbis tell us, not to the right, not to the left, not one iota. We have to be absolutely faithful and obedient to what the rabbis tell us. Where the authority that the Chachamim have is clear, the scope of that authority is not clear at all. On which matters do the Chachamim have this incredible authority known as Los Asur? And this, in fact, is a famous machlokas between the Rambam and the Ramban. On the one hand, the Rambam, both in his Sefer HaMitzvos and in the Mishnah Torah, tells us that there are two aspects of Los Asur, two different areas that the Chachamim have such authority. Number one is their interpretation of the Torah Shebuch their interpretation of the Torah text. We all know that often there are parts of the Torah which are a little bit unclear, and we need the Chachamim to interpret them. Or there are various hidden uh, messages in the Torah which can be decoded by the various hermeneutic principles known as Rabbi Shmuel's Yud Gimel Midos, Shatar and Adreshes Behen. So how do we know when the Chachamim tell us that this is what the Torah wants? They interpret Sukkim in a certain way that makes something obligated or prohibited. How do we know that listen to the Chachamim's interpretation of the Torah? This, of course, was very famously throughout history by people such as the Karayim. The Chachamim's authority was rejected. But the Torah says, the traditional approach, of course, is, yes, we must listen to the Chachamim. When they interpret the Torah, we trust their interpretation, and we are obligated to listen to their interpretation based on Losasur. Comes the Rambam and says, however, there's a second aspect of Losasur as well, and that is mitzvos derabanon, gzeros derabanon, with Chachamim, not that they're interpreting the Torah and telling me, this is what Hashem wants. This is what we think is the best thing to do. They have a, a mitzvah derabanon, Yom Tov Sheni, for example, something like that. Or there might be a Gzeira Derabonon. Don't do this because it might lead to an Avera. Who said we have to listen to those mitzvahs or Yisurim Derabonon? Says Ramam, that's also part of Los Asur. And it's on this second point that Ramban, in his commentary to the Sefer Mitzvahs, so passionately disagrees. Says Ramban, Los Asur only includes the first aspect. The Chachamim are the ones who are duly empowered to interpret the Torah and tell us what the Darais of Mitzvahs are. But the Chachamim's own takanos, their own mitzvos, that has got nothing to do with Los Asur. That's something completely different. Los Asur is only about their interpretation of the Torah text. Among the questions or proofs that are brought against the Rambam's position, perhaps the best, most powerful question, one that the Ramban himself asked is, if according to the Rambam, that every mitzvah de Rabbanon is really obligated under the umbrella of Losasur, then how come we find famous discrepancies between the level of obligation and severity of Didim Darabanon and Didim Daraisa? For example, in a case of doubt, when you're not sure about something, we all know the f- very famous rule if it's a Din Daraisa, it's a Torah mitzvah, Safak Daraisa Lechumra, we have to be strict. But if it's only rabbinic, 
Suffolk the Rabban Lakula, we can be lenient. I ask the Ramban. That doesn't make any sense according to the Rambam. Because according to the Rambam, every Darabonon is really a Daraisa, because it's under the umbrella of Los Osor. So why does it make any sense to be more lenient in a Darabonon than in a Daraisa, when really every Darabonon is a Daraisa? So one answer that's given to this question, very famous answer, suggested by numerous Rishonim and Achronim, is that the Torah in our parsha Lotasur, the Torah tells us, you must listen to the rabbis. But the rabbis themselves when they were metakein a particular mitzvah or iser derabanan, they themselves built in this condition of when in doubt you can be lenient. They themselves put in that escape hatch, so to speak. In halachic terminology, b'chihai gavna, lo teknu. The chachamim themselves say you can be lenient. In other words, the Torah says, lo tasur, you must listen to the rabbis, absolutely. But the rabbis themselves say you can be lenient, so the, so the Torah allows that. Whereas in a daraisa, you don't have that. In a daraisa, suffolk, L'chumra. That's one answer. A second answer is suggested by the Meshachachma here in our Parsha. And he says there's a fundamental difference between Daraisas and the Rabbonans. Daraisas are inherently, the object itself is inherently, on a metaphysical level, problematic. If something is Asr de Rabbonan, let's say a non-kosher animal, Nevelo or something like that, on a metaphysical level, there's something inherently problematic. It's an Isr Chefza, there's a Metzius. It's spiritual poison. We don't understand that, perhaps it's metaphysical, but it's spiritual poison. Therefore, if it's a case of suffake, when in doubt, if I told you this cup might be okay or it might be poison, would you drink it? You're not sure. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's okay. But who would take a chance? So therefore, suffake the rice of the chumrah because you're playing with poison. However, there are bonons. It's true that the Torah says you must listen to the rabbis. Absolutely, you must listen to them. The Torah says los osor. But they were never given the power to transform the metaphysical composition of that chefza. It's not inherently usr and problematic because the Chum said not to do something or to do something. There's an obligation on the person, Achiv Gavra, but the object itself, the Chavta, is never inherently changed. And therefore, since we're not playing with poison, we have right to be lenient when all there is is a suffix, a question of doubt. The flip side also must be discussed, which is, if the Ramban has his questions against the Rambam, the Ramban seemed to have left out why, at least according to him, we have to listen to the rabbis at all when they have a mitzvah de Rabbanon. We know from the Ramban it's not because of Los Asur. But he seems to have forgotten to tell us why we do have to listen to the Chachamim. Why do we have to listen to the Chachamim if it's not Los Asur? I don't want to keep Yom Tov Sheni. I don't want to keep Hanukkah. Why do I have to listen? It's not Los Asur. What's the basis of that? So one very famous answer is suggested by Rav Hanan Wasserman in his essay, Kuntras Midivrei Sofrim. And he explains that the Chachamim, Hiskimu Da'ito L'Da'as Hamakom. We assume that the Chachamim intuited on their own, anticipated what Hashem himself would want us to do. The Chachamim, because of their piousness and their overall mastery of the Torah, they understand as best as any human can, if you will, Kaviachal, the mind of Hashem. They understand what Hashem would want. And if they told us to do X or Y, they intuited, anticipated what Hashem himself would want. Rav Shachter likes to give a mashal when he quotes this about if you're buying somebody a present, you weren't sure what he or she liked. Who's the best person to ask? Their spouse. Hopefully, if it's a good marriage, you ask their spouse, because who else would know better than the spouse what this person would want? So too, the Chachamim know what Hashem wants from us, and therefore, according to the Ramban, you must listen to Dinim de Rabbanon.